Good morning, church. I invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to Esther chapter 3. Esther chapter 3. We find ourselves in the book of Esther as a church, believing that all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching and for training in righteousness. We believe Romans 15, 4, that what was written in the past was written for our instruction so that we may have hope through endurance and through the encouragement from the scriptures. This morning from Esther chapter 3, we're going to learn about God's providence in perilous times. God's providence in perilous times. The Heidelberg Catechism defines God's providence as His almighty and ever-present power, whereby as with His hand, He upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and so governs them that all things come to us not by chance, but by His fatherly hand. Likewise, the Belgic Confession defines God's providence as His rule and governance of all things according to His will, so that nothing happens in this world without His appointment. We will have our eye toward God's providence in the third chapter of Esther. By way of background, the story of Esther takes place in the Persian capital city of Susa. King of Persia at this time is Xerxes, known as Ahasuerus. At this time, some Israelites had moved back to the land of Israel after the exile. But Esther illustrates the story of the people of Israel who remained in exile in Persia. Chapter 1 opens in Ahasuerus' third year. And in that same year, we see that Queen Vashti is deposed for refusing to show off her beauty in front of the people and the officials. Sometime later, chapter 2 states, Esther becomes queen after winning the king's love. And in verse 7 of chapter 3, we see that the events of chapter 3 take place in the 12th year of Ahasuerus' reign, perhaps five years after Esther becomes queen. Here in Esther 3, we are introduced to the fourth and final main character of the story, Haman the Agagite. We're also introduced to the crisis of the book, namely that Haman plans a complete annihilation of the entire Jewish population in the Persian Empire. Chapter 3 also clues us into the naming of the Jewish festival of Purim, since the Pur, that is the lot, was cast to select the date of Israel's execution. Last week we saw in Esther chapter 2 that Mordecai discovers two of the king's officials plotting the king's murder. And if you look with me at chapter 2 verse 21, the text says, During those days when Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the entrance, became infuriated and planned to assassinate King Ahasuerus. When Mordecai learned of the plot, he reported it to Esther, and she told the king on Mordecai's behalf. When the report was investigated and verified, both men were hanged on the gallows. This event was recorded in the historical record in the king's presence. Although Mordecai revealing the assassination plot, although that was recorded in the king's record, Mordecai was not honored for this heroic act. Look with me at the beginning of Esther 3 verse 1. 
after all this took place, King Ahasuerus honored Haman, the son of Ahamadatha, the Agagite. He promoted him in rank and gave him a higher position than all the other officials. So that kind of sets the context of Esther chapter 3. And from this chapter, we are going to meditate together on four acts of God's providence. Four acts of God's providence. The first we see in verses 1 and 2, that is the promotion of Haman. The promotion of Haman. Verse 1 introduces us to Haman. And the narrator is keen on making sure we understand that Haman is a descendant of Agag, king of the Amalekites, from 1 Samuel 15. The Amalekites are the ancient enemies of Israel. Haman is mentioned as an Agagite in verses 1 and 10. And these Amalekites are the group known as the perpetual foes of God's people. Verse 1 tells us that Haman is appointed by the king as top official in the empire. It's a prime minister type of position. The text does not say, though, how that promotion came to be. What events led to Haman's promotion. Upon Haman's appointment, verse 2 tells us that the entire royal staff at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman because the king had commanded this to be done for him. But Mordecai would not bow down or pay homage. Interpretations vary as to why Mordecai did not bow. Was this caused by jealousy over Haman being promoted instead of him? Would Mordecai's bowing down to Haman violate his devotion to Yahweh as the God of Israel? Are we to understand Mordecai's refusal to bow as avoiding idolatrous worship? Perhaps Mordecai would not honor Haman because that would go against God's previously declared opposition to the Amalekites, as we will see in just a moment. In short, assessing Mordecai's purpose in not bowing and his associated character in not doing so is not straightforward. Mordecai does courageously save the king in chapter 2. We don't see any documented complaint from Mordecai after being overlooked for a promotion. And yet, Mordecai's refusal in chapter 3 endangers every Jew in Persia. Mordecai at the king's gate, presumably bowed to other officials. Mordecai shows loyalty to a king who is undeserving of it in chapter 2. We will see in Esther chapter 8 that Esther herself is going to throw herself down before the king, begging for his aid. We see in numerous occurrences in the Old Testament that Israelites paid homage to such superiors. They pay respect to, payment, to pagan rulers and officials. We must understand in these opening verses that Mordecai is not being asked to worship a foreign god, but only to recognize someone in authority over him. Maybe Mordecai had been exposed to Haman already, and maybe had understood what a dangerous man he was to hold the second highest position of authority in Persia. Perhaps that's why Mordecai instructs Esther not to reveal her identity. We simply don't know. We are, though, given an indication of why Mordecai does not bow in verses 3 and following. Look at the text with me. The members of the royal staff at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why are you disobeying the king's command? 
when they had warned him day after day and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see if Mordecai's actions would be tolerated since he had told them he was a Jew. From chapter 2 verse 5, Mordecai is described as a Jewish man. From the line of Benjamin, a descendant of King Saul. The Jews are Mordecai's people. Chapter 3 verse 6 tells us. So why does Mordecai refuse to bow? Oh, of course. It's because Mordecai is a Jew and Haman is an Agagite. And I'm sure that's the same answer that you came to the first time that you read Esther 3 on your own. By Haman being introduced as the Agagite, there's an intentionality on the part of the narrator to draw attention to the tension between the Amalekites and the Israelites. By way of Old Testament background, after Israel escapes the tyranny of Egypt at the Exodus, the Amalekites are the first nation to try to destroy God's people on their journey to the promised land. Exodus 17.15 says that the Lord would be at war with the Amalekites from generation to generation. According to Deuteronomy 25, the Amalekites were to be destroyed as quickly as possible. This ancient feud is reported again in 1 Samuel 15. Agag, as I mentioned earlier, was the king of the Amalekites. Saul, the Benjaminite son of Kish, king of Israel, was directed by God to destroy the Amalekites, but he failed to do so. Agag was taken prisoner, but not killed. Samuel the prophet curses Saul and fulfills the Lord's command to kill Agag. Ironically, Saul ends up being killed by an Amalekite, as recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 1. So here's the implicit backdrop of Esther chapter 3 that we need to briefly consider. Had Israel and Saul obeyed the Lord and wiped out the Amalekites, Haman would not have been appointed in Persia. And a brief lesson for us is that the failures of previous administrations, previous generations, sometimes lead you to a place you should not be in human terms. But despite those past failures, we are right where we are meant to be in God's all-wise providence. God ordains that Haman and not Mordecai be promoted at the beginning of Esther chapter 3. That purpose will be seen in later chapters. So the first act of God's providence in Esther 3 is Haman's promotion. We're going to see in verses 3 through 6 the second act of God's providence. That is the persecution of the Jews. The persecution of the Jews. We see in verses 5 and following how Haman responds to Mordecai's refusal to bow. Look with me at verse 5. When Haman saw that Mordecai was not bowing down or paying him homage, he was filled with rage. And when he learned of Mordecai's ethnic identity, it seemed repugnant, that is unacceptable, to Haman to do, with Mor- do away with Mordecai alone. He planned to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout Ahasuerus' kingdom. So Haman apparently does not notice Mordecai's disrespect until he is told of it by other servants. Not being satisfied with punishing Mordecai alone, Haman engineers a plot to wipe out all of the Jews in the kingdom of which he is not king. We see very clearly in these verses the racism of Haman. Directed toward the Jews, a racism that is abominable and from hell. 
Hatred towards God's people is always an expression of hatred toward God. Furthermore, any such hatred toward a particular ethnic group is satanic. Satan hates God. He hates his image bearers. And especially image bearers who are his people. Satan is always pursuing the death of people, either physically or spiritually. Haman here is a prototype of all anti-Semitic, anti-Jew leaders who would follow him, including Hitler, who annihilated six million Jews in Nazi Germany. Here it is, it is fitting for us to reflect on the many connections between Esther 3 and the first two chapters. Haman is likened to the king in his honor, fury, wealth, and ego. Ahasuerus issues a kingdom-wide decree after Vashti refuses to honor him. Similarly, Haman is going to issue a kingdom-wide decree after Mordecai refuses to bow down to him. Ahasuerus and Haman are not private in their responses. The king consults wise men. Haman likely engages magicians in the casting of lots. Both episodes include the promotion of someone unknown to the reader, Esther in chapter 2 and Haman in chapter 3. A celebration takes place in both accounts. A great banquet for Esther in the fulfillment of the king's beauty contest and a private drinking party for Haman and the king in the declaration of Haman's genocide plan. At the end of chapter 2, an assassination plot is uncovered and averted after the king's eunuchs become infuriated. And at the end of chapter 3, another assassination plot, this one empire-wide, is pending. Lastly, Haman will argue that the king ought not to look over the dishonoring of the unnamed ethnic group, the Jews, just like he did not overlook the dishonoring of Vashti. The death sentence Haman has in mind will include the Jews who had already turned to Jerusalem as well as those who remained in exile. Look at verse 6. Haman planned to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, note this, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, which included Jerusalem, Judah, and the surrounding area. And this brings us right to the heart of the plot of this book. If God does not intervene, God's people are going to be destroyed. In Esther 3, the future of God's people and His promises appear to be uncertain. Now as we think about Esther 3 in light of the whole Bible, we need to understand that this chapter functions as an elaboration of Genesis 3.15. Remember that first promise of the gospel after the fall of Adam and Eve. God says, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. The offspring of the serpent the serpent, the devil, is once again attempting to destroy and wipe out the offspring of the woman. What we have in Esther chapter 3 is not just two warring ethnic groups, but a battle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. 
between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, between the reign of Christ and the Antichrist. Haman functions as a successor to Cain, Pharaoh, and other enemies of the Jews who desire to annihilate completely God's people. In all of those instances, including Haman's genocide plan, reveal those people to be offspring of the serpent. In Esther 3, Satan is once again scheming that God's people would be removed and God's salvation purposes would fail. Yet in God's providence, Haman is restrained from executing this plot immediately. And this brings us to our third act of God's providence. The restraint of Haman. The restraint of Haman in verses 7 through 11. Verse 7 says that in the first month of the year, the pur, that is the Persian word for lot, was cast. And this again provides the rationale for calling the feast in chapter 9 Purim. In this section, Haman consults astrologers or magicians who used pebbles or broken stone for dice. Haman might be in this verse seeking the cooperation of the cosmic forces in which he intends to be the destruction of his personal enemies. To be sure, he uses the lot to select a favorable time to carry out his vengeful attack. It was believed that the first month of the year was an important time to cast lots. Those lots land on the last month of the year. So having that information, Haman is now going to approach the king to put forward this plan to Ahasuerus. We see in these verses that Haman offers to pay for the entire operation. The 375 tons of silver that you see there would have been over half the annual income of the Persian Empire. Haman must have expected to gain a vast sum of money from the Jews plundering. In chapter 7 verse 4, Esther assumes a payment was involved since she says that her people had been sold to destruction, death, and extermination. So how does Haman convey this plan to the king? Look at verse 8. Then Haman informed King Ahasuerus, There is one ethnic group scattered throughout the peoples in every province of your kingdom, keeping themselves separate. Their laws are different from everyone else's and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. Verse 9, And if the king approves, let an order be drawn up authorizing their destruction. And I will pay 375 tons of silver to the officials for deposit in the royal treasury. One commentator vividly describes the mixture of truth and error in Haman's informing the king. The commentator says, Haman's accusation of the Jews was diabolically clever in its construction. Proceeding as it did from the truth, i.e. the Jews were dispersed, to half-truth, i.e. their customs were different, to a lie, i.e. the Jews did not obey the king's laws. Being scattered, the Jews were hardly a threat. Yet God's people were meant to live under a unique set of laws, but Haman spins it to portray the Jews as traitors, as rebels against the king's law. But remember the end of chapter 2. Mordecai, a Jew, risked his life to save the king. 
Haman's proposal we see is filled with moral deception. Like chapter 1, the response to one wife will end up involving all wives in the empire. And so here, the response to one Jew will involve the entire Jewish population. So here it is, the twelfth year of the king's reign. To our knowledge, the, king, the Jews have not been an issue thus far. Haman, you will note, does not mention the Jews by name. He does not mention his personal tension with Mordecai. It's only because this is in, the, in Haman's best interest that it might be in the king's best interest. What is shocking is that Ahasuerus does not inquire to know more. What's remarkable is that the king does not even ask which people are to be destroyed. To the dismay of the reader, the king is complicit in Haman's plan. Verse 10, the king removed his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the enemy of the Jewish people. Then the king told Haman, the money and the people are given to you to do as you see fit. Unlike chapter 2, no investigation is undertaken by the king. Without a moment's reflection on the morality of his decision, without a single question about Haman's claims, with absolute obliviousness to the moral horror of the request, the king passes his signet ring to Haman to approve the plan. The king's signet ring is passed to Haman which is going to be used to seal the official documents and letters sent out to the entire empire. The king's ring is going to give Haman the royal authority to enact this plan. But here's the dreadful irony that we should see. Haman enlists the king's support to annihilate the people group that includes the man who just saved his life as well as his new queen. Having saved Ahasuerus from a lesser evil, Mordecai and Esther are facing a greater evil per Haman's plot. Here in chapter 3, the king approves of the wicked plan of Haman, once again following the empty-headed advice of one of his officials. I think we ought to reflect here on the absolute abuse of power and leadership the utter disgrace of prideful and selfish authority. We see in this section that the king blindly, casually, callously, and wickedly empowers the plan of his newly appointed official. Esther 3 reminds us that power and leadership and authority are important and therefore we must pray for those in high places. Those who exercise leadership over people. And we ought to also reflect on the different kind of leadership that our King, God Almighty, exercises over us, His people. Praise be to God that the one who is in actual authority over the universe is good, righteous, wise, and trustworthy. He exercises His kingship for our eternal good. So let's submit to Him wholeheartedly. The final verse of chapter 3 ends on an awful note. After the death document is issued to the empire, the king and Haman sit down to drink. 
Haman and the king are unmoved by the coming massacre of the Jews. Even as the entire population is dumbfounded by this edict. A decree has been issued for the annihilation of an entire people group. The empire is in chaos. And the two leaders of Persia are at peace with their plans. Unconcerned with the lives that they oversee. Notice in this final verse that the population does not share the anti-Jew outlook that the edict calls for. Verse 15, the city of Susa was in confusion. But where are the leaders amidst this confusion? They're having a few drinks. The next time Haman is recorded sitting with the king to drink, it will be a feast prepared by Esther. A feast that will begin to overturn Haman's wicked plans. In Esther 3, we are to mourn the misjudgment of the king appointed Haman to second in command. We are meant to lament such terrible leadership. But we are also to see God's providence does not cushion His people from trials or from the malice of evil men. Mark Dever in his overview sermon of Esther says, quote, We must not think of an event as not providential simply because it is hard or even tragic. End quote. Friends, God is as active in our peril as He is in our prosperity. God is as in control of Mordecai not being rewarded in Esther 3 as He will be the honoring of Mordecai in chapter 6. We read in Proverbs 16.33, the, the law is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. Nothing in all of creation runs loose from God's sovereignty. God controls the lot. The roll of the dice, the falling of the sparrow, all of it is under God's control. We see in Esther 3, God has graciously cared for Israel by restraining Haman to not immediately enact his violent plan, but instead to cast lots for a favorable day. To God's praise, the evil of Haman is bounded and superintended by God's most holy and wise purposes. We see in Esther that Haman is not sovereign over the events of the future. God Almighty is. And the lot falling on the last month of the year is one indication of that reality. And this brings us to the final act of God's providence that we see foreshadowed in Esther 3, but will come to fruition in later chapters, and that is the rescue of the Jews. The rescue of the Jews. In verses 12 to 15, the order is written and dispersed. The final verses of Esther 3 make clear that the decree was issued everywhere. And this edict defines one of the most perilous times for God's people in the Old Testament. The immediate fate of the people of God hangs in the balance. The fulfillment of God's covenants and purposes looks to be in question. Verse 12 says that when the lost are cast, it is the month of Nisan. The first month of the Jewish religious calendar. The lot reveals that the empire-wide extermination will occur in the month of Adar. That is the twelfth month of the year. 
This decree goes out on the eve of Passover. The 14th day of Nisan was the day of Passover. That celebration of God's delivering the people of Israel out of Egypt. So see the unmistakable irony amidst the terrible circumstances that the Jews face. The day before celebrating freedom from Egyptian oppression, a decree goes out for their destruction. The next day was going to be a time of God's great salvation of the Old Testament. A time of reflection for how God overcame Pharaoh and his forces. But on the 13th day of Nisan, a decree of total destruction of the Jews is given. Look at the gruesome repetition of the words in verse 13. Destroy, kill, annihilate. That appears to be the future of God's people if God does not act on their behalf. For months, the Jews will simply have to wait. You can imagine the anxiety, the concern, the desperateness that hangs over the people of God until chapter 6. So we're left asking, at the end of Esther chapter 3, who will save this people? The Jews' situation appears to be hopeless. Who was going to come to the rescue of a powerless people in exile who stand doomed? A document sealed with the king's ring has been sent to everyone in the empire. All levels of government and the citizenry are informed. But to God's praise, He has a plan and He has a person in mind. Matthew Henry said, quote, Though the name of God not be mentioned in this book, the finger of God is directing the minute events for the deliverance of God's people. End quote. God has already prepared Israel's deliverance before any news of this destruction is disseminated. Esther, who is not mentioned in chapter 3, has been divinely positioned by God. And this whole plan is going to showcase once again God's wisdom, His love, His power, His commitment both to Himself as well as His covenant people. Purim, just like Passover, will celebrate the salvation of God's people, the preservation of His chosen ones. And this, friends, even amidst the people of God not being faithful to Him, not returning from exile, God is going to deliver them, not because His people are faithful, but because He is faithful, because He is merciful, because He is gracious, because He loves the people that He has covenanted with. We've seen throughout the Old Testament that Yahweh has delivered Israel from tyrannical empires and extreme threats in the past. He will do so again in Esther. And church, He did so again ultimately in Jesus Christ. It is fitting for us in this chapter to remember the provision of God for us amidst our hopeless condition. Our situation in our sin was so dire that God Himself had to come and be our deliverer. We had not bowed down to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We had refused to pay Him honor. 
And as a result, a universal irrevocable law had been decreed forever that the wages of sin is death. But unlike Haman and unlike the king, our God did not respond indifferently toward us. He did not just simply let us be damned. Instead, in love, God sent His Son, the one who is higher in position and in authority over all that He has created. This Son took on human flesh. He was perfectly obedient to the laws of God. Christ, the eternal Son of God, died in the place of sinners, guilty sinners on the cross, bearing their wrath, the just wrath of God. And He did so in His substitutionary death for sinners. He rises again from the grave in victory. We know from the New Testament that Jesus is the promised seed of the woman who crushes the head of the devil on the cross. He is our Redeemer who has freed us from a hopeless verdict of condemnation. A verdict of eternal judgment, by the way, that can only be escaped by faith and repentance in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The only way, unbeliever, for you to escape a judgment that is irrevocable, that will soon come to pass, is for you to look to Jesus Christ, the one sent for sinners, the one who became a man and died in your place, who lived a perfect life in submission to God's law. Believe in Him. And like the people of Israel, like the church, you too will be saved. Christian, we see in Esther that God Himself acts to achieve the safety of His people and the defeat of the foes, despite how hopeless and helpless and dire the situation appears in Esther 3. And therefore, church, I believe we're to take comfort in our trials. God does not abandon us. Wherever God's people are scattered, whether in Babylon or Jerusalem or Persia or anywhere else, God promises to help us. He always comes to our rescue. No plot to annihilate God's people will succeed. No earthly kingdom will triumph over God. For anyone who tries to scheme against the gospel, their evil designs eventually designs will eventually ultimately be overturned. As we read earlier from Psalm chapter 2, all who gather against God, His anointed one, and His people will fail. We're going to see in weeks to come in the book of Esther that Haman's edict will ironically lead to his own demise. We can't always see it. But God in His providence is guiding every detail of every moment. Even in the most perilous of times. So let's trust Him in our waiting. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, what a story. What a display of Your power and wisdom. Lord, in these acts of promise, of providence, the good and the bad, help us God to live for You to trust You, to believe on You, to cling to You, for You are our hope and our hiding place. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.